and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am your host, Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today and share our guest. But before we get to him, I'd like to share a bit more about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about what the world calls soft skills. See, we believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. Today's guest is going to talk about these inner skills and how they impact him on a wire. But before we get to him, I really want to talk about strong skills because we are transforming how companies, executives, athletes, and sports teams value these skills by providing one-on-one coaching and interactive workshop experiences. Through those experiences, we hope that our society will start calling these for what they are, their strong skills. If you're interested in learning more about our work, feel free to visit our website at strongskills.co. Once again, that's strongskills.co. Additionally, one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. The teachings come from my book, which came out last October. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you'll love the book. Today's guest is actually featured in the book, which is pretty cool. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase and can listen to the audiobook through Audible, which is also over at Amazon.com. Thanks to all who have already purchased, and I've been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Appreciate the support. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our past conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. At first blush, you might assume that Nick Walenda has no fear. After all, he has 11 Guinness World Records and a list of never-before-seen death-defying feats. He's written his name in history as truly the king of the high wire. He has performed live in every state in the U.S. and all over the world. 
He has garnered the support from tens of millions of live viewers in network television specials on ABC and the Discovery Channel and others. I've watched on TV as he's walked tightropes over the Grand Canyon with no safety net or Niagara Falls or walking blindfolded over skyscrapers in Chicago. All along the way, Nick appears to do the impossible, things that you and I probably could never imagine of. Yet Nick is human. He feels like you feel. He thinks like you think. But he is very intentional and very thoughtful with how he thinks and how he feels. And he's had to do a lot of deep work to handle his own fears and his own traumas. So this conversation is certainly about how Nick has set his mind to do what many of us would consider to be unthinkable. And it's also about the vulnerability of dealing with challenges that Nick has faced throughout his career. I think you're really going to appreciate how Nick thinks about fear, how he handles it, and his journey to dealing with tough stuff. And what may seem complex and difficult and impossible to you is something that Nick has learned to do throughout his life. And yet we all still struggle with our own feelings, our own thoughts that can cripple us at times. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Nick. He's ridiculously inspiring and I'm in awe of what he's able to do on a wire. And I'm also inspired by the work he's done on the ground. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Nick Walenda. Nick, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We were connected by a friend of mine and a friend of yours and a past podcast guest, Don Yeager, who is just an incredible guy. I've heard him speak before. Uh, he's been a mentor to me as I wrote a book uh, and you had the privilege to work with him in writing yes. the book. And I said to Don, I reached out and said, hey, what's one question that I should ask Nick? And he joked and said, who's the best writer he's ever worked with? And uh, <laughs> so, so we'll plug Don here at the beginning and just thank him for introducing us. And where the book starts and really the, the first half of your book which is really incredible. And I really enjoyed it. And we will certainly talk about the nature of the book, but I was surprised in reading the book that the first hundred pages are really all about this experience that you had, this traumatic experience. So I'd love to start there because it really was not what I was thinking when I picked up the book, that it would go into the vulnerability of your fear and the trauma that you went through. So give sure. people some context into what that experience was like for you. Absolutely. So back in 2017, uh, my family and I were training to break our own world record of the highest four level eight person pyramid on the wire. Uh, it is something that we performed and set the world record back in, uh, man, I think it was in 2001 over in Japan. And our goal was in my hometown of Sarasota, Florida, to do something big and exciting for my hometown fans and friends and family. Uh, so we trained for about two and a half months for that pyramid in my backyard and then eventually made our way over to the performance area where we were going to premiere it two days later to Guinness World Records and a live audience. And um, training went great. And we went over, made our way over to the performance area. Wire was about 20, 28 feet above the ground is where our feet were. It's a four layer pyramid. So the top person being my aunt was over 50 feet high where her head was. And uh, the first rehearsal went great. We decided we would go to dinner and come back the next morning, have one more rehearsal, and then premiere it in front of the audience. And all of our training is done in my backyard preliminarily, a couple feet off the ground, and then we go up about 15 feet, and then we go up to full height. 
And the reason why we train at full height is to prepare ourselves mentally for what we're going to face. Uh, oftentimes I will train somebody for years down low, two feet off the ground. They'll be amazing. Bring them up 20 feet and they can't walk the wire. They're completely uh, immobilized. So we go up Nick, to full Nick, height. When, when that happens, yeah. when you move them up, because that makes sense to people that are not used to walking a wire. Hey, two feet. It's kind of like a balance beam in my head. All right. Yeah. Balance beam on the ground is easy. You start going up. It becomes harder. What do you do to help those people overcome what, so, whatever their fear is? Yeah. So sometimes it's, it's hard to, to, sometimes they're not able to overcome that, but the reality is it's a lot of mental coaching the in um, you know, in all, all senses, the, the wire is the same, whether we're two feet off the ground or 30 feet off the ground, it's really a mind game. And it's, it's, you know, I've learned in life to be successful. I have to be able to control that internal dialogue. I allow my mind to go. And, uh, and that is very important. And that's how I coach people when they are dealing with that. In fact, I start coaching them that two feet off the ground. Uh, and I start at that point and hopefully instilling these thoughts in their mind of, of, um, of what they allow in and what they allow out. I believe that we are in control of our minds and, and, uh, and, and it's not, our minds aren't in control of us. So we, we are in control of that. We often forget that. And that's when I have these slip ups as, as you know, I was going into that story now of that, that, um, that pyramid that we trained so extensively for, uh, we went out, rehearsed one night, next day, come back, get back on the wire. Everything seems good. We do all of the opening routines that we do at full height. And then I look to everybody on my team as I do before every single uh, performance or every single time we attempt this pyramid. And I look them in the eyes because I want to know that they are there, that they're there mentally. I have to see that they're calm and cool and in control before I'm going to get on the wire with them. Because the reality is when we do this eight person pyramid, we're all tied together. If one goes, we potentially all go. And so Nick, Nick, how do you compartmentalize that? Because I think about football, for example, they have a head coach, they have a coaching staff. Of course, there's a quarterback that might take on more of a leadership role or the middle linebacker on defense takes on more of a leadership role. But here you are having to look in their eyes. How do you do that while also making sure you're where you need to be? Because you're also player coach. You're also sure, performing. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, one of the one of the blessings is the fact that I have a done what I've done for so long. I've done it my entire life, started walking a wire at, at 18 months old and, and, and done it for so long that it becomes second nature. But what I found is when I'm in that leadership position, I'm able to stay more calm uh, and collected than I am when I'm on my own. In other words, when I'm walking over an active volcano, my mind wants to go a lot further and I really have to fight that urge of, of following that, that negative internal dialogue. Whereas when I'm leading, I'm now so focused on the others and making sure that their internal dialogue, that their minds don't go to those places uh, that I can, I can, I don't have to worry about myself. I'm so focused on them. And, and that is, um, you know, I think, I think that's interesting, but it's almost a distraction, but it's a healthy distraction. I know my abilities. Uh, and if anything is going to take me down, it's going to be my mind. And, uh, and if it's distracted by worrying about others' minds, because I know what it can do to me. So I'm concerned. I don't want to allow it to do it to them because we're all tied together. Do you think about, because I always think there's two options for how we handle pressure. We can disassociate from it. We can listen to music. We can take our mind away and let our body do the work. 
or we can embrace it and almost look it right in the eye and say, let's go do it. Do one of those pass or do you blend the two or how do you think about it? I I would say often I blend the two very much. Um, I will tell you that I love pressure. I live for pressure. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy, but I, I mean, I risk my life for a living in reality. Uh, I love that feeling. I love that emotion. It's not a rush. It's the amount of pressure. There are times because I'm so involved in every aspect of a, my TV specials or, or, uh, rigging or the design or the creative. Um, I take on a lot of pressure in every single angle and, um, and it, 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 it's tough at times, but I enjoy that feeling of being under the weight of the world. And then I think I even, I'm, I more so enjoy overcoming the weight of the world. You know, it's the process. You have all of that weight on you in order to get it to, to relax that weight. You've got to make it through, you got to make it through the fire. And, um, and I just love that process of, of working through all of that and working that weight off to get to the other side. I think one of the things I appreciate about your book was the vulnerability to talk about your own anxiety and your own fear and what comes like the dark side and the downside of worrying about everyone and every detail and how much that takes its toll also. Um, But for you, you've developed this process that I think about everything in the future so that I can be present on the wire, right? I perfect everything ahead of time in preparation so that I can be adaptable when I need to be on, on the wire. As you think about going forward, and we'll get back to what happened in Sarasota for sure, but sure. this stuff is, I, I think this stuff's really interesting. As you think about your performances in the future, is there ever a part of you that will dial down the hands-on nature of how you do things? Is there ever a part of you that will let go of some of the control of those things? You know, I, I would say that, yeah, I mean, there certainly is a point where I have to allow, you know, you can't be in control of everything. If anything, I've learned in my career through 200 plus years of my family history, it's that we have to surround ourselves with great people in order to be successful. And any intelligent or, or successful businessman will tell you that. So I have to let go of all of that. Now, what I do is I try to control as much as I can, um, but in a respectful way to those around me. And eventually I can pass that off knowing that the people around me can handle the task at hand. There are times where I'm leading up to an event where my team has dropped the ball, where I have to step into a role outside of mine, one that I've has, passed off. I've got to step into that role and sort of take over two roles. Now I got to, I got to do this leadership role and I got to step down here and deal with this rigging design role because my team has dropped the ball. One of the challenges of my career is I'm the one on the wire. I know what it feels like. I know what I'm dealing with. I know how to face the winds, et cetera. My team member down here may not know that because it most likely, obviously not a wire walker, can understand engineering. You know, it's like an engineer. Engineers are incredible at drawing things, but all of them should have to be out in the field working for the first five years, in my opinion, on the job site, because that is how you'll know, hey, okay, I can draw this, but it's not realistic in the field. Well, that's the same with me. So often I have to step down and have a unique uh, a unique opportunity, I guess, but um, it's a unique situation. I have to step down into these lower roles because again, I'm the one out on the wire and I'm the one who understands it. Although on paper, it makes sense to the engineer. It doesn't make sense in the real world. It's fascinating because I think about, I work with a lot of leaders in business and a lot of them are high performers. That's how they become leaders is they perform well, then they become leaders. And I know you do a lot of keynotes and corporate work as well. 
for them though, one of the things that absolutely gets in the way of their ability to lead is when they jump back in and they start doing the execution for their team and they don't empower their team because they're good sure. performers. So yep. they jump back in, but there's two differences that are, that are different about a sales manager. Let's say yeah. a, the sales manager is actually not supposed to be on the wire once they're a sales manager, right? They're yep, not supposed right. to be executing. And two, it is different selling. Like I used to sell condominiums. Mm -hmm. It is different. If I don't sell a condo and I have a really bad experience, okay, like there will be someone else. But if you don't have a good wire or you don't have a good experience, like you said, the reality is it's life and death. So yeah. talk about the similarities and the differences that you notice from your perspective. Yeah, look, uh, you know, as I mentioned, as as in my career, it is it is so unique because it is my life. It is uh, me stepping into these roles because it's my life. Again, I empower my team, but there's a point where I have to to, to kind of get back into the into the ditch, if you will. My team will go off. I'll say, here's the walk I'm going to do. Here's the overall concept. Now go with it. But there's a point where just like in any business, okay, now you're going to bring that plan back to me. I'm going to review that plan as a leader and go, you know what? That doesn't quite work. Uh, and if, and if I see that, that one of my, my, my members, team members are, are going off in the wrong direction, I have to corral them back in. And often I have to step yeah, down into that role and say, no, here's where you messed up. Let's not let this happen next time. Uh, because again, this is my life. This isn't a sale. This isn't, uh, you know, reaching our bonuses. Uh, this is life or death. So um, because of that, I'm sort of forced to go back down into the, into the trenches every once in a while. But I do my best to allow my team to do what they do. You know, the other thing is, you know, because it's life or death, I, I have no choice but to be involved with the rigging while it's going on. You know, my father is there. My father walked a wire for many years. He's amazing, uh, amazing at what he does, extremely knowledgeable. But my dad hasn't walked the wire for 30 years. And from when my dad walked the wire under a big top in a circus tent to me walking over a volcano 1,800 feet high, totally different. So even though he has some experience, he doesn't have experience at the level that I've been able to do it and perform. Uh, so often I have to step in even with my core team. It's not even someone, you know, it's not a, an associate. Uh, it's one of my executives where I'll have to step in and say, okay, you know what, we've got to make some changes here and here's how we're going to do it. But I, I try to always empower them and use it as a, as a lesson. And that is extremely difficult when it's with your family, when it's with your father. You know, my father taught me so much and now I'm able to kind of go back to him. Uh, and through that, again, I try to empower my team of here's where you messed up, but we won't let it happen next time. And here's why you messed up. Uh, and again, it, it, it turns into a learning experience and it's an educational experience. It's not how dare you, I could have died and, and you know, and, and, and screaming and yelling, which it could be. It is, hey, here's, here's what we have to change and tweak. And, uh, and look, there's times where I deal with, with a staff member where I say, you know what, this just doesn't work. You're not getting it. You're, you're, not, you're not as involved as you need to be. I need my entire team to realize that it's life or death. Uh, and, and if they don't realize and acknowledge that, then they can't be on my team. It's so interesting because you have managing the team. So let's take your walk over a volcano um, where, you know, it's a solo sort of act. I know your, your wife was also involved with that or sure. the Grand Canyon or New York's a little different because your sister was involved, but mm -hmm. you have, you still need to lead a team, even if it's a solo walk, but it's leading a team differently than if you're doing the pyramid. I'm curious for you, 
what what's your mindset like when you're leading a team where they're on the wire with you compared yeah. to a solo act? Um, and how are those different or how are they similar and, and what goes into that? Yeah, I mean, there are certainly a lot of parallels, of course, in the end, as we keep mentioning, it is life or death. So I'm, I'm, I'm very involved. I would say that um, when it comes to holding a pyramid with, with, with a group of people, it is, not a, it is not a team member, it's blood. I mean, it, it literally is family. Life or death, we would do anything. We are literally trusting each other's lives in each other's hands or feet because we're on the wire. But the reality is, it is, it, it's got to be that bond. It's got to be a, a bond that is unbreakable. You can't just throw somebody in the mix and say, okay, this is going to work. We've tried it and we've had struggles. I talk about it in my book where we've brought other people in that have a lot of experience wire walking, different training, different, uh, you know, different methods. I think a lot of corporations and businessmen deal with that as well, where you, you know, bring someone in from sales of, you know, from a, uh, selling condos who, and now you're selling cars. It's, it's a different ballgame, you know, the education, the way that it's done, the, the process, the procedure. And sometimes it's hard to get the, the condo salesman out of the car salesman. And we deal with that as well in the wire. But as as a as a leader, when it is a pyramid, it it has to be um, you know it's it's more than a team. It is, and and I don't even know how to how to word it. Um, we're certainly a team, but we we have to become one on the wire. We are one, and we have to become one. Uh, you know, we can't we can't get in an argument and go. You know what? I don't like that coworker, and then go to work together because the reality is, I don't like the person that I'm trusting my life in his hands. Uh, that's very, very dangerous. In fact, with, with, my, with my wife, it's a rule that because we do perform together, once we are getting ready to go up and perform, we will give each other a hug and a kiss, say I love you, and then perform. And we might pick up the argument afterwards, but that argument ends before we get on that wire. And that's the same way with our team. Do you prefer walking with a team or walking by yourself? You know, I would say there's a lot more pressure when I'm walking with a team. Again, the, these these lives are all in my hands. My life is in their hands. Uh, and, and that accident in 17 proves how dangerous it can be. And we have a family history of, of accidents, 1962, where the seven-person pyramid fell and two uncles were killed, one paralyzed from the waist down. Um, you know, that is that is our history. So it's four years. We're recording February 4th, I think. In 2017, February 8th. So this is this is still pretty recent. I mean, talk about how that has impacted you and um, influenced you, if it has, and what that experience was like for you. Yeah. So we finished training that one night. Next day, go back. Everything went well. Halfway out on the wire, the pyramid. Worst nightmare ever that I could ever imagine. Pyramid collapses and uh, falls to the ground. I caught the wire. My cousin caught the wire. Uh, one of the other gentlemen caught the wire or actually stayed standing on the wire. Uh, but five family members, friends fell to the ground. My aunt, my sister injured probably the worst. My sister had broken every bone in her face, uh, 73 screws and plates in her face alone. But, you know, being a leader, I caught the wire and one of my best friends was in the, in the audience watching that. And it was a rehearsal, but he was out in the seats watching. And he'd held the pyramid with me actually in Japan. And I was on the wire. I made it down and to my sister before he made it into the ring. And he was within 30, 20 feet away. Um, but as a leader, I immediately go into leadership role. I have to assess the problem. What's, what happened? Who's hurt the worst? Uh, and, and how are we going to fix this? 
how are we going to, at that point it was life or, I mean, we had people dying. My sister, I didn't think she was going to live. I wasn't sure if my aunt was going to live. Another gentleman was in and out of consciousness. I was more worried about him than anyone else. Um, it was, it was a very, very traumatic time, but I stepped into that role of, okay, let me, let me go down. When, when I go through any, even on the walks, when I deal with a lot of stress, a very stressful situation, everything sort of slows down for me and I can sort of take it all in. So the world sort of stops and goes in slow motion. So I, I can recall it like it was yesterday, but, but getting down to the ground and going, okay, let me assess how is my sister, how is Andrew, how is Zeb, how is my aunt, and literally checking everybody and saying, okay, who's the worst here? At that point, I, I determined that my sister was the worst because her face was so mangled. In fact, within 60 seconds, couldn't recognize her. Um, you know, really gruesome, really, really tough situation. Uh, but, but what happened then was I was in that leadership in control role. So I wasn't freaked out. I wasn't worried. I wasn't screaming. I wasn't yelling. I wasn't panicking. I was in full control. What I didn't realize was there was a seed that was planted in the back of my mind when that accident happened, and it was a seed of fear and doubt. And I went on to get on the wire the following day, thinking I was doing what was right. We had live performances. I had family in the hospital, didn't know if someone were going to live, didn't know how hurt, didn't know if any of them were going to walk, et cetera. And I decided, uh, A, that I was going to go to every individual, and, and this story is quite a bit longer, but I was going to go to every individual in their hospital rooms and those that were conscious, my sister was in a coma at that point, and ask them their blessing or, or to not, whether, they, whether they'll allow me to, uh, out of respect for them, because we are one, we are a team, to get back on the wire. And every one of them uh, that were conscious that I was able to connect with said, yes, we want you to, to do it. In fact, I remember specifically, I can, I can visualize the room. There's a lot of, um, with traumatic experiences like this, you can relive it anytime with, and, and I can remember being in, in the, in the hospital room and, and looking at Andrew and him looking at me and just so soberly saying, yeah, I think you're crazy, but I think you should get back on the wire. So long story short, I got back on the wire and performed for the next six weeks straight. In fact, that the following day I spoke to a corporation, uh, from the wire, 140 feet above Amelie Arena in Tampa, the corporation rented out, which they often do, they'll rent out an entire arena, and I'll walk on the wire and, and I'll do speaking from the wire. And, uh, and, and then I went on to perform for the next, uh, I think it was actually four, four and a half weeks. And doing what I thought was right, I thought, you know, we all know the analogy of getting back on the horse. That's what I was doing. I got back on the horse. I need to get through this situation. I'm a leader. I'm strong. I'm tough. But the whole time I was dealing with these thoughts, that internal dialogue in my mind, telling me you're going to fall. You were the leader. These people fell under your control. It's all your fault. All of these thoughts coming in of just tearing me up. And I consistently in my life try to re return positive for negative. So to go, no, I am a leader, but we were all in it together. We all know the risks. It's the danger. It's our family history. This isn't a surprise. We all signed releases and waivers, acknowledging that we understand that we are risking our life. This is all. So I, I continually have that conversation in my mind. After those six weeks, I took, uh, or four weeks, I took uh, a couple months off and was training to go headline on a show in New York uh, after those two months. And during that time, I, I continued to water that seed. I broke down that, that argument of returning that negative for positive the positive started going away and I started believing the negative and I started believing that I wasn't, I, I was going to fall again. And that, that uh, you know, that I wasn't going to make it across that wire the next time I get on. And the next time we do that pyramid, I'm responsible. And somebody, they may not all live miraculously. They all lived and recovered and walked. And we talk about times square with my sister soon, but, but um, it was, it was um, 
you know, generally I would, I would tell myself I've held that pyramid probably more than anyone in the world. I've held it with different teams since 1997. I've been holding that pyramid thousands of times successfully, but it's amazing how our mind consistently wants to go to the one time that we fell, not the 10,000 successful sales. It's the one sale that we lost out on. Uh, it's unfortunately, it's just the way that our minds are programmed. And, uh, and again, I start, started believing those, those lies that were being, being told to me in my head and eventually sort of succumbed to them and started training uh, to recreate that pyramid again for a contract that we signed prior to the accident. I probably wouldn't even went there. I mean, it, I look back on it and, and as I even talk to you, it's kind of a revelation. But if I hadn't signed that contract, which I am a man of my word, I will always fulfill every contract I sign. I've never backed out of a deal, never changed my mind. Uh, if I hadn't signed that contract, I don't know that I would have got back on the wire and doing that seven person pyramid ever again after that accident. But it was sort of, I had to. You know, when I returned to the wire right after the accident, I wasn't doing that big pyramid. I was doing a smaller pyramid and, and other performance, other show, other tricks on the wire, riding bikes, handstands, et cetera, but not holding that big pyramid. But that had, that had forced me in my hand to get back on the wire doing that pyramid, that big pyramid. Hey, Nick, you said, I thought it was the right thing to do to go the next day to get back on the wire and for six weeks, just continue to perform. As you look back at it, do you still believe that it was the right thing to do? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that it was the wrong thing to do. I think what, where I messed up was I went to, uh, my family made me go see a, a, uh, a psychiatrist, um, a psychologist. And, and I remember sitting with, with that individual and, and telling them, kind of recounting the accident. This was within a, within a week after the accident. And I remember specifically them saying, you have not dealt with this. You have buried it by getting on the wire. By doing what I thought was right, I actually buried what I was dealing with. And I sort of just covered it up with getting back on the horse rather than, okay, I had an accident facing it and dealing with it. And I remember them specifically saying, you are going to have to deal with this eventually. And my thought was, I'm a strong leader. I've done this. I've dealt with some of the highest pressure you could ever deal with in anyone's life outside of obviously highly respectable jobs of military and police, et cetera. But, you know, I deal with a lot of pressure and a lot of stress. And, um, and I thought I can deal with this. This is something that, that I'm fine. Um, but again, and I was fine for those, those six weeks afterwards, four to six weeks, because I was on the wire, I was burying it. And, and I just kept burying it deeper. And what happened was when I got back on the wire to train for that contract, that future contract, uh, those wounds started to come up and, uh, and I didn't know how to deal with it. I had buried them so deep and it was something that I just never dealt with. I never dealt with fear on the wire you know, what, what you would consider fear, at least uh, before this accident, I would consider respect. You know, when I walk up to the edge of the Grand Canyon, 1,000, 1,500, 1,800 feet down on the, on a rock that could give way, my heart jumps and goes, you know what, what if this rock gives way? I respect that. I respect the fact that that is dangerous. Yeah. My heart races. You might call it fear. No, no. That's a deep respect a reverence for what I'm about to face. Uh, but this fear, that four-letter word fear that I started to deal with after that accident was debilitating. It wasn't, I respect this, so I'm going to train and prepare properly. I'm going to train in 90-mile-an-hour winds so I can face the 50-mile-an-hour winds over the Grand Canyon. This was a, a fear of, you know what, you can't do this. You're going to fall. You're not going to make it. Uh, and trembling, physically trembling on the wire. Yeah, I had a thought as I was reading your book about how 
brilliant you've become at compartmentalizing and how you were brought up to learn how to compartmentalize. You're right. What other people would be afraid of, maybe you just respect and you don't let that fear consume you. Whereas that person that you're training that's starting at two feet and then they go to 20 feet, they have a different experience. But because you've been on that thing since you were 18 months, you've learned how to compartmentalize. But then I think about overusing strengths and how if we overuse something, it'll often become a weakness. And I often think about trauma as sweeping dirt under the rug on your front porch. And like we take, we take the dirt and we just sweep it under the rug and then the dirt just manifests under the rug. And then it might lead to mold and all kinds of other issues, but no one else can see it. Like your front porch looks good. And so it, it sounds like it was underneath for you. Well, it was. And what's interesting as you say that is I thought I was sweeping it under the rug And eventually they could see it because what had happened was we started training and I started physically trembling on the wire uh, to the point where I was like, I was done. And I remember going to my wife in our apartment in New York City and saying, I need you to watch the next pyramid because I'm not sure, but someone's shaking in the pyramid. And, and the reason I said that was because often when we hold this pyramid, somebody new, somebody that hasn't performed in a while, even though we've trained and prepared, but in front of an audience, we'll start to tremble. And in that pyramid, we are so connected that I can feel the person in front of me trembling. I can feel the person on top of me trembling. I can feel that vibration. And it was something that was so abnormal to me that I didn't understand if it was me or not. And I was still denying it. I was still sweeping it under the rug. And my wife said, I don't need to watch the pyramid. She goes, it is you that's shaking. You are the one. And I remember at that point starting to face uh, a shame like I'd never experienced before. Uh, the next practice, one of my guys who's been with me, my literally known in my entire life, he's been a performing, perform with our family forever, came to me and he said, what is your problem? And I remember I was like, what do you mean? What's my problem? Everything's fine. What is your problem? He goes, you're not you're not the leader that we know. Something is different about you. Something is wrong. Uh, And you are not the one who's inspiring and pushing us like you always do. And again, that's when shame hit me really hard. And I realized, wow, I thought I was hiding all of this. I thought I was the tough guy and the daredevil and the leader and the, you know, everything excelling in every area that I needed to, uh, or at least acting like it, at least out in the open. But the reality was I wasn't doing a good job of that at all. And everybody knew what I was experiencing. So, so then what I realized was now not only have I buried all of this fear, but now I've got to deal with the shame because the shame is what's covering up the fear. So now I've got to deal with the shame before I can even deal with the fear. Uh, that- and I have to face the fact that, hey, and humble myself to realize, hey, you know what? You're not, you're not as great of a leader as you think you are. You're not as good at hiding and covering up as you think you are. Uh, people can see right through that. And what did you do to improve as a leader and to handle the shame? You know, I, I had to, I had to a go to my entire team and say, Hey, you know what? I apologize. I, and, and being humble is such a key to success and being a great leader in my opinion. Uh, and, and, and I I've learned that when I lead by being humble, that the team around me tends to be that way as well. When I can go to my team and say, literally gathered them together in a field and said, guys, I am sorry. I am not the leader I'm supposed to be. I'm dealing with something that I've never dealt before, completely transparent. I mean, that's the way I've lived, tried to live my life um, is to always be completely transparent. No matter what the situation is, here's where I messed up. It's easier to apologize. It's easier to say, you know what, rather than hide it and say, as a leader, I, I messed up. 
And I'm just going to hide this and no one knows. Well, the reality was I was trying to hide it and everyone knew. Uh, so it's so much easier to just say, you know what, guys, I, I am dealing with something that I've never experienced. And, and what happened through that was our bond grew tighter as a team. But they also all said, well, yeah, we've dealt with that, too. We dealt with that when we started training or, or I'm dealing with that, too, now. Um, and what we realized, what I realized was it, it only made us that much stronger and that tighter of a bond uh, between all of us and grew our relationship by me literally in tears in the field saying, guys, I am sorry, I have messed up. I am not the leader I need to be. I'm dealing with this fear. And, and now I need you guys to hold me up. And that's what that team did is they surrounded me. And now when they were, when I was dealing with fear, they would say, Nick, don't forget how many times you've done this. Nick, don't forget the abilities that you've had. Don't forget, uh, you know, the talents and gifts that you've been given and so blessed with. Um, so they really lifted me up and that's what helped me get through that time, which was probably the darkest time of my life dealing with, with that four letter word fear. It's amazing. I know you have at least a son in, in the military. Do you have others? Yeah. And, and yeah, I have two sons in the military and then I have a daughter that's uh, about to go off to nursing school. So are you familiar with Brene Brown's work on vulnerability? Yes. Yeah. So when I hear your, your talk, Brene often talks about going into the military and asking all of these strong dudes, tough dudes, probably like, like your sons and saying, how many of you are vulnerable and no one raises their hand. And then she said, well, how many of you are courageous? And everybody wants to be courageous, especially men, um, but not necessarily vulnerable. And I think about her work in the humanizing of you with your team they probably never saw you as a human right like they probably looked at you and said this guy is a machine um and to show them that side of you probably allows you to not just connect from a competence level and from an x's and o's standpoint but also from a human heart standpoint and i would imagine it, it created something sort of next level and transformative from a relationship standpoint yeah, without question. I mean, that I look back on that, and there's so many things that have happened um, through that with my team, uh, team members that were dealing with stuff that I had no clue they were dealing with in their lives were now revealed. And now they've been able to overcome what they're facing through this situation as well. And some of them, some deep, dark stuff that they were dealing with that, that would blew me away, had no idea. But um, and I almost get tears as I say that, but the revelations that came through that and the, the opportunities that came through that and the life change that came through me just saying, you know what, guys, I'm not perfect. I do mess up. I can't, I can't take the whole world on as many of you as I thought, you know, who am I fooling? I thought that I could take on the entire world. Um, and I realized, hey, you know what? I can't. And I am human and I do have to deal with emotions just like everybody else. I work with healthy people. So people don't come to me after they've fallen off or had the experience that, that you've had. I'm not uh, an expert in trauma. I'm not an expert in depression or severe anxiety. So I typically work with people who are healthy and want to get better. And that's sort of the lane that I play in. And I am so blown away by how many healthy people or seemingly healthy people have trauma in their life. You would never know by what their job is or what they're able to do in their craft. And um, sometimes I wish people could get a window into their souls because there's, there's pain in a lot of human experience. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, I think we've all dealt with something in one way or another. And, and look, there's different levels and I would never compare what I went through as traumatic as what others have gone through and vice versa. But we all have these, these, these pains that we're dealing with in our lives. And, and so many of us tend to bury them. And, and that's the worst thing we can do. Although we think we, and, and often we're burying them with success, right? Like, Hey, I, I, you know, I've, I've led this company to a fortune 500. I've done this. I've, I've been, I had all these successes and, and we're really burying this, this guilt or the shame or this past experience or this traumatic experience with all of that. And we use that as a cover up. That's sort of our bandaid, but eventually no matter how successful you are, eventually that bandaid is going to come off and that wound is going to be revealed and opened back up. And, and the, the deeper we try to bury it, the harder it is to deal with it. Uh, so I encourage people, man, there is nothing wrong with, with showing that you're human and, 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 and having the right people surrounding you that you can talk to, you know, whether it be a best friend or a professional in the, in, you know, as a psychologist, psychiatrist, et cetera. But if you can actually sit down and, and deal with those situations, man, you will find out that there's so much freedom in that. Um, so many people too, you see in the world and, and they're happiest people you could imagine happiest people you've ever come across. And when you meet them behind closed doors and actually get to know them, they're actually not happy at all. And, uh, and it's, look, it's sad. I think that, that again, our entire, our entire world is dealing with, with obviously right now we're dealing with a situation that is unprecedented nothing we've ever dealt with before. I think, you know, I know that suicide rates are up. I know depression is at an all time high. Uh, there's so much pressure. Uh, and, and I encourage people, man, surround yourself with great friends that are, that are, that are uplifting. You know, what I've learned in life, and my wife is certainly my best friend, and then I have a, a team of, of leaders and mentors that surround me as well. Um, but when I am at a low, generally speaking, my, my, my mentors and friends aren't down there. But so many times I've been able to mentor my mentors because there will be a point where that person who you look up to is on top of the world they're going to drop down. Life is full of uh, mountaintops and valley peaks and valleys. I mean, it is the reality of life. So if we can do life together and surround ourselves with people that can help us, my goal is always to get to the mountaintop and then reach down and help somebody else up because I know that they're going to be up there because as they're up there, I'm starting to wake my way back down. And, and that's just the reality of life. And, it, and, and I've, I've learned that so much growth in my life happens in the valley. It doesn't happen on the mountaintop. I'm, I'm rejoicing up here, but I'm by myself because I'm at the top. When I'm in that valley, that's when I'm growing. And to the point now that when I'm dealing with, uh, with the stress of every TV special I do is extremely stressful. I've never done one without major, major hiccups prior to the event. Days within days, not one, I can't tell you, that hasn't had a major problem days before where it looked like, A, I couldn't either, either couldn't make it safely or, or it wasn't going to happen. But what I've learned now is I can stay calm because through that, when I'm in the valley, I know that I'm on my way. I'm on the road to a mountaintop. Mm. And, and when I'm in that valley, again, I'm growing and I'm learning. So now the people that I mentor, I can say, but I've been there and here's how I got through it. And that's really why I wrote this book, Facing Fear, was I've been in that valley of fear that is debilitating, that is gripping, that will not let me take one more step on that wire. Uh, and we are all on a wire. We're all trying to get to the other side. And my hopes by writing this book with Don is that those that are down there can read this and go, okay, well, this is how Nick got through it. And you know what? If I use those principles, I can get through it too. Yeah, there are two books in one. You had, the, as I said, the first hundred pages were about being down and being out. And then the second hundred are really about the experiences that, that you had 
um, that that culminate in walking over a volcano. Um, but there, there are two things I want to hit on. And then there's a, a question I have is this idea that what we resist persists. So when you think about trauma, if we resist it, then it'll manifest and persist and then it'll show up somewhere else. So uh, yeah. it, it shows up in, in other areas. Yeah. And, and so to move away from the trauma, because there's also so much in your career that is, that is bright and, and beautiful, but you, you were using the word mentors. And as I was hearing you talk earlier, you were saying, Hey, Sometimes I need to step in and say, you don't know what it's like on the wire today. You don't know what it's like to walk over a volcano. You don't know. You're experiencing things that people literally have not done before. Yeah. So who mentors you? Who are you in awe of? And I know that God plays a big role in your life and sure. there's spirituality throughout the book. And I understand that faith and God are integrated into who you are. But mm -hmm. when you think about people that are on this earth, who mentors you or who do you look up to? Who inspires you? Who are you in awe of? Who are the people that, that you look up to? Because frankly, I, I watch you and, and you're inspiring and Thanks. you probably hear that a lot. I'm in awe of what you're able to do. So who inspires you? Who are you in awe of? Who mentors yeah, you? So I, I would say early on in my life, um, there were several people and, and it kind of is a broad spectrum, but Michael Jordan is somebody that I looked up to, you know, immensely growing up and, and I just saw his drive for excellence and, um, and, and, and this is a mentorship by distance. Obviously, I don't, I don't have a personal relationship with him, but seeing how hard he worked to be the best at what he did. And it wasn't like it just came natural. Now, obviously, there's natural talents that I have, that you have, that, that, that Michael Jordan had. That, that, but he outworked everybody. It wasn't that he was just naturally gifted and, and this is easy. It was I, not only am I naturally gifted, but I'm going to outwork everybody tenfold, not just by double. I'm going to do it tenfold and dedicate that much time to what I do. Uh, so that was a big influence in my life as I was growing up. And, and to be honest with you, my, my family industry, the circus world, is a struggling was a struggling industry it's it's gotten a little better it comes in waves but still certainly struggling in fact my great grandfather wrote a book in the 70s and in that book in one of my chapters is called fear of feathers and the reason is is he says in the circus one day you eat the chicken and the next day you eat the feathers and uh and that's very very true my mom wrote a book in the 80s called the last of the Walendas. she felt like there was no future so as i was growing up my parents were encouraging me to leave the industry they didn't want me to carry on this industry not because of the dangers not because of the risks, but because of that, well, because of the financial risks, they, they didn't believe I'd be able to support a family. And through that, I remember at 15, I got a job at a restaurant as a busboy and, uh, and, and was always a strong believer with mentors or people that I looked up to like Michael Jordan, uh, people that excelled that, and, and how did they get there? Um, I always wanted to outwork everybody. So a long story short, the general manager of that restaurant, his name was John Carson. I talk about him in my first book balance, but he sort of took me under his wing and he was an early on mentor. And by the time I was 22, I was still performing in the summers. Uh, but my wife had been, was pregnant at that time. So I decided I was going to stay home. So from 15 to 22, I worked from bus boy to kitchen, to kitchen manager, to uh, floor manager, to assistant manager, to general manager. So I was literally the general manager of the fastest growing breakfast restaurant in the country at the time. And uh, at 22, leading people that were double my age that were working for me, but because I worked so hard and also because of the mentor that I had in John Carson, who taught me how hard work pays off.
And um, so he was one that I certainly looked up to. And then look, as I got older and my career progressed, I've been blessed to have incredible mentors like John Maxwell, uh, for one, who, who I adore, uh, who is, uh, you know, a genius for one, uh, but just somebody who is, uh, who will mentor someone like me on a personal level. Somebody who will call and say, how are you doing, Nick? What are you dealing with? What's going on? Um, you know, Don Yeager has become a mentor for sure. Somebody that I, I, I look up to greatly who has, has taken me under his wing because I do corporate speaking, but uh, have never really pursued it. To be honest, they've always, every event I've ever done has been pursued. They've, it's been incoming calls. And he said, look, there's an opportunity. You're gifted. You're blessed. You're talented. You need to use this to help others. And and I don't know how to do that. I'm a wire walker. I'm, I'm a businessman. Yes. But uh, he took me under his wing and said, here, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we are going to. And he coached me through, uh, through that process. And we're in the, we're still going through that right now of here's how you can take that to another level. Cause in the end, what I do used to be out of it about impressing people. Now it's about inspiring and changing lives. If I can use what I do. And there's, I think to any leader out there, if you can inspire people, if you can mentor, there's such an incredible reward in that way, way greater than any bonus check, way greater than any pay level that you'll be at. If, if I know that I can invest in someone else's life and their life will change to the better forever, that will live on past me, that is what a legacy is. And that's what life is about. So I, I encourage uh, leaders who, who often, including myself, can box ourselves in because we are so focused on what we're doing. We're focused on that goal. Here's the numbers we have to, we have to hit. Man, start mentoring people. There is no greater feeling and no greater reward than knowing that I'm investing into someone's life. Two things. One, I recently had a guest on that said the best mentors share their imperfections. And I think that's just a beautiful thought that yeah. I often don't think of. And I think about you showing your vulnerability and sharing those imperfections. It opens you up to mentor people in a way that you probably wouldn't have been able to if you hadn't have gone through that awful experience. And not yeah. saying you should have to go through that awful experience, sure. but there is an opportunity there to humanize yourself. And I think that's pretty beautiful. So I think about that from a mentorship standpoint. And then inspiration is the word that you were using. I had on uh, Cal Fussman, who's this amazing writer and a, just a remarkable man and has a great podcast called Big Questions with Cal Fussman. And Cal came on my podcast. He's probably the most curious dude I've ever been around. And so he starts on my podcast, just asking me questions <laughs> as we're recording. And I'm like, Cal, it's supposed to be about you. But he introduces me and he's got this big energy. He goes, Brian Levinson, motivational speaker. And I go, I sort of cringe. He goes, what? I go, well, I don't really think it's my job to motivate people. And he goes, well, what about inspiration? And I go, I can get behind that. And I'm bringing this back to you because I think we all need inspiration in our life. Like we all need, especially you mentioned being in a pandemic, like who doesn't yeah. need inspiration during a pandemic? I think we all need that. So I love that you're stepping into that possibility. You mentioned your, your three kids. Um, I'm assuming they were on a wire at 18 months. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're, they're now going through their life and experiencing different professional experiences. It sounds like they're the three of them are all believers in giving, giving and being in yeah. service. If two are in the military and one's trying to become a nurse. Yeah. Are they, as you have dreams of a circus and dreams yeah. of, of changing what your mom, what you heard from your parents and, mm -hmm. and changing maybe the thought process. I'm assuming you're not saying the same, you know, feast or famine 
analogy so, yeah, that's right. to your yep. kids. So yeah. what's the messaging to your kids as it relates to the possibility of them one day inspiring and entertaining others like you have? Yeah, look, I would tell you that I have have empowered my children growing up and told them that A, that anything is possible. And I'm living proof of that. I, I came from an industry that was dying, that was struggling, that it was, uh, you know, starving artists, eating the feathers, not the chicken, you know, facing every challenge you could imagine. And I was able to take that industry, you know, what I do on that wire over the Grand Canyon is the same that I'm doing. And to be honest, the risk, we've, we've had fatalities in our family that prove it. The risks are, are pretty much the same too, whether it's under a big top or over the Grand Canyon. But I was able to take that and bring it to the masses. And, and sort of my goal was always to revitalize this industry that was that is going away. And, you know, I've told my my children that as well, that, look, you can accomplish anything in life and um, and you have to pursue your dreams and your passions, not mine. Yes, all of them walked the wire. In fact, I was shooting for Time magazine, uh, I don't know, about a year and a half ago. And my Marine, who's now 23, was home and he was helping me put the equipment out and such. And he got on the wire and we were just playing. And, and I was trying to knock him off the wire and I couldn't knock him down. Part of our, part of our training is chicken fights on the wire. We try to knock each other off and I couldn't knock him down. Um, it's very good on the wire. Uh, but again, I, am, I told them, look, you can accomplish what your goals and your dreams are. And they do have that giving spirit, that giving heart. Uh, my 23-year-old's a Marine. You know, my 19-year-old is in the Army, going to medical school, uh, hopefully going to become an orthopedic surgeon eventually. But that was their choice. It wasn't as though I said, you need to go to the military. Uh, it wasn't as though I couldn't afford to pay for their college and their, their tuition. It was, Hey, you know what? We want to give back. We, we, they are, they are the heroes in my life, the military, again, in our, all of our defense system, um, uh, here in the United States, but you know, they, they are the guys that are making the sacrifice, but I, I told them, look, you can do anything. And, and they, in the military, they have excelled far beyond anybody at their, or most people at their level, because they have that same drive and that same passion. They've learned to be passionate about what they're doing. And I think that's a key to success is to be passionate about what you're doing. I am passionate about walking that wire so that I can inspire others that nothing is impossible. If I can make it across an active volcano with 2000 plus degree magma with gases that are so thick that the cables were literally deteriorating. Several of them failed days before that walk. Then guess what? If I can make it from one side to the other, then so can you. And, and, and I've told them, look in any aspect of life, no matter where you are, if it's working at McDonald's, that's fine because eventually you're going to own that McDonald's as long as you have the drive and passion. Or if you're working, if you want to be the president of the United States, I have no doubt whatsoever that you can be the president of the United States, but you have to set your mind to it and work at it. It's not going to come easy. It may not come natural, but if you work hard enough, you can achieve any goal in life. And, uh, and because of that, they have made me an incredibly proud, me and my, my wife, incredibly proud parents. Um, Again, they are serving our country. My daughter is going to nursing school. She was actually considering joining the Navy, which I don't know where that came from, this military desire, but um, I, I couldn't be more proud of, of what they have done and, and the sacrifices they have made for our country. I'm smiling because this morning I saw my son eating breakfast and he was wearing a NASA shirt and he loves space and astronauts and ro rocket launches and all that sort of stuff. And I said to him, I go, Braden, are you going to be an astronaut? He's like, no, dad, I'm going to be a football player. And I go, well, you could be a football player first and then become an astronaut. You know, a lot of astronauts 
are something else. And then they right. become an astronaut. And he sort of looked at me and uh, I think too often we crush dreams, especially yeah. in, in kids, because we bring our own crushed yeah. dreams, dreams and we put that on our kids and somebody's going to do it. Like, so why yeah. not make it them if they want to, if they choose right. to do it. So I love that you talk about dreams and how fear often crushes dreams. And I think other people can often, the impact that adults can have on children as it relates to dreams, I think is real. And when I interview people on this podcast, I often hear them talk about their parents telling them, hey, you can do whatever you want. And those little things are, are really yeah. important for kids. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how many stories we hear where a teacher just invested, again, mentorship as a teacher, what an incredible role you have to build up the next generation. But just investing in that child and saying, you know what, you you can be an astronaut and you will. Be. I believe in you. You have the ability. You may not be doing great in math right now, but guess what? After this year, you're going to be the best student we have. Those words are so empowering and literally can change somebody's life. We have so much control with our tongue. We have no idea. And we, we, we literally, yeah, we literally can change people's lives with the words that come out of our mouth. What an incredible opportunity that we often, we so often blow, we so often mess up uh, because of past scars, because of past traumatic experiences. And, and as you said, well, I wasn't the astronaut, I'm a teacher, but guess what? What if you're the person that sends the next person to space because of your words when he was seven years old in first grade? you can be that person and everybody has that ability and that gift and that talent. We just have to tap into it. I'm getting chills as you talk. Cause I just wrote a book. I'm happy to send you a copy of it, but um, I actually mentioned you in the book, which is, <laughs> awesome. which is pretty fascinating. But, um, and I had a, a teacher my freshman year of college who said, Brian, you're a good writer. You is a writing one Oh five class. And he was the first person that outside of my parents or like, sure the people that maybe I wasn't really listening to. Yeah. It said, you're a good writer. And, and when I was writing a book, I thought about him and I thanked him. I don't even remember his name, but that person just saying that to me stuck with me. And then I had a, a friend in college who said, Brian, I don't know what you're going to do, but you're going to do some big things. And like, he doesn't even remember saying that to me. And so I acknowledged him in the book. And I think you're right. We often forget the power and influence that we all have with the people that were around. I want to start closing and, and finishing with you, but there's one theme that was over and over in the book, which is this idea of what's next. All right. I've done the grand Canyon. Now I'm going to do the skyscrapers. Now I'm going to do a volcano. Now I'm going to like upping the ante every single time. And I hear you sort of at the end saying, all right, next is the circus. Like I'm next, yeah. I'm going back to this industry that helped create everything that I have today. And I want to almost give back and revitalize this industry. Is yeah. there a downside to always thinking what's next? Is there, is there a, a dark side or a downside to that? I don't think so. I mean, often my what's next turns into next, next. But I think it's important that we always have goals. I, I, I think it's so important that we set every year. In fact, my boys do this. Uh, all, the, all the guys that I mentor, they have to write down their goals for the year. Uh, A, there's something powerful about writing it down. And now I can keep them accountable for it. Uh, and in mine, I put goals and I encourage everyone that does that. My, my children, I want you to set a goals that are tough. My son's 19 in the army. He wants to buy a house this year. There's not many 19 year olds in the army that are going to buy houses, but guess what? He takes every penny he makes, he invests it. Uh, he's extremely creative. He's smart. He's always studying the stock market and he's, he's actually blown me away with how successful he's been at 19. But 
I have no doubt he'll buy a house, but that is stretching him. And I encourage my, my children and those that I mentor, I want, I want your goals to stretch you. I don't want it to be, hey, I want to lose three pounds this year. I want it to be, I will lose 30 pounds this year. I want you to push yourself hard. And I think that's important. So as far as what's next for me, the circus has always been my passion, but it's always been my greatest fear as well. And the reason being is because of those voices, because of my mom saying, you know what, this industry is dying because of others saying this industry is going by the wayside, it's not going to be successful. That's what's been put into my mind over and over again. So if you hear something enough, you start to believe it, whether it's true or not. And, uh, and look, the reality is the circus is, is changing, but I, but that's just it. I don't believe it's dying. I believe it's changing. And I'm proof of that. I have been blessed to be the most successful circus performer in history. And I don't say that arrogantly, but it is a blessing. It is mind boggling. I look back at my career. I look at the emails I get every day and I'm blown away. I, often two days ago, it brought me to tears. Like who am I to get emails from the president of, of four major networks in two weeks? That is unbelievable to me that I'm at that point that that I'm sought after by I'm a circus performer. That's who I am. Uh, but my my fear is, can I revitalize the circus? Um, but what I've learned is I can't revitalize the circus or I won't know if I don't try. And it's so important that we take those steps. So I am in the process of starting my own circus that will tour around the country. We are trying to make it unique. I was raised, it's my lifeblood, 200 years, circus is who I am. It, it's who I've always been. I cringe at the word circus, and I'll tell you why. Because the media uses the word circus as the most chaotic, messy, unorganized mess. That's what it is. But the reality is circus is the most organized industry. In fact, so many industries have modeled after the circus. Back in the day, the circus was would, would be a... a 1800 seat theater that would move into your town overnight with 1400 people and over 800 draft horses just overnight you would you would wake up the next morning and there'd be an entire city built within your city an entire theater built within your city that's quite an undertaking uh cartoons have gone spongebob squarepants i would watch with my kids and, and a circus was a cheesy clown on a unicycle with a honking nose and juggling balls that's not what circus is so our challenge is how do you re-educate the public of what the circus really is because they've been misinformed for the last 20 or 30 years. In fact, the, the athletes that come out of the circus will blow you away. Uh, Olympic athletes are often per circus performers because they've trained their entire lives for one thing. What do they do after that? Cirque du Soleil is an incredible example of taking those athletes and turning them into circus performers. Um, so uh, it has been a fear of mine, but it's something that I am willing to take on that task and that challenge of, hey, do I have the ability to revitalize this? Can we get the next generation? What I have learned over and over again, when I headline on a circus, which is seldom, but when I do, and when we get teenagers into that big top, hands down, every performance I do, I'm out front, no matter how much notoriety I have, I will be out front shaking hands and signing autographs. No matter what, I will always be that person. I'll be there till the last person leaves. I'm going to be out there because I want to hear from my fans, from my friends, from those that follow. And hands down, 99% of those teenagers will say, we had no idea that that's what a circus was. And we will be back for the rest of our lives and we'll bring our kids to re-educating and getting them back into that big top, which is a challenge that I'm willing to face and I'm excited about, I'm nervous about, I'm scared about, I'm dealing with fear about, but it's something that I'm willing to do. 
Nick, uh, you, you came alive when you were talking about it and you sort of answered my question about why thinking what what's next energizes you, excites you, and makes you feel alive. And it's so clear that you live to feel alive. And for me, that's become the goal, right? Rather than chasing happiness, let's just chase these feelings of aliveness, which are the, the peaks and valleys that you even talked about. All of that is feeling alive. I'm respectful of your time. I know you've got a lot going on. Um, so I just want to close. I've got 20 more questions for you. And, and <laughs> Next time, we'll do it again. I hope to go to your, your, your circus and we can, we can talk about it in person and hopefully without masks on one day and, and we can break yes. bread and, and I'd love to learn more from you, but I want to just give you a, a megaphone to promote anything that you want to promote and to use our final minute here to just give a, give a shout out or megaphone, anything that you think deserves a shout out. And look, facing fear is the book. Highly recommend people read it. Uh, Nick's you can tell an amazing storyteller. And then Don Yeager, who helped Nick with the book, is an all-time legendary writer. Everything he writes is fantastic, and your book is no different. So congrats on Facing Fear. Is there anything else you want to promote or shout out uh, before we close here? Well, thank you, Brian, for having me on. First of all, it's, it's certainly an honor to be here, and we will do it again, and we will break bread, and there's no question that we will uh, be able to walk around without masks eventually. We'll get there. Uh, we just got to stick together and uh, stay focused, and we'll get through this pandemic for sure. But, you know, uh, you know, of course, a thanks to Don Yeager, who is an amazing writer, an amazing mentor. Um, but I just want to encourage everybody that, that um, you know, there is so much power, again, I'll just say it again, in mentoring people, in, in your words. There's so much power in our tongue uh, that we, we really need to think, you know, I try to wake up in the morning and think, how can I help change someone's life every day? And even if I am in a bad mood, what I've learned is as I think about that and go, how can I invest in someone else? And as I think about that, and, and there are times we all do, and I don't know why, maybe it's a dream that we have or a position we slept in, but we'll wake up in a bad mood. We'll wake up on the wrong side of bed. But if I can start out by reading something positive, a positive quote or something, and then focus on how can I, how can I use this day to invest in others? How can I use this day to encourage someone else? And I don't care if it's telling the cash register clerk that they have a great smile or if it's uh, you know telling somebody how to solve a math equation. The reality is there is a lot of power in that. And, and I want to encourage everybody, don't take that for granted uh, and guard your tongue and use it wisely to empower others and change lives. Thanks, Nick. This was a lot of fun. Looking forward to uh, meeting you in person one day. Appreciate it. You can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Uh, Nick, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I've learned that so much growth in my life happens in the valley. It doesn't happen on the mountaintop. I'm, I'm rejoicing up here, but I'm by myself because I'm at the top. When I'm in that valley, that's when I'm growing. And to the point now that when I'm dealing with, uh, with the stress of every TV special I do is extremely stressful. I've never done one without major, major hiccups prior to the event. Days within days, not one, I can't tell you, that hasn't had a major problem days before where it looked like, A, I couldn't either, either couldn't make it safely or, or it wasn't going to happen. But what I've learned now is I can stay calm because through that, when I'm in the valley, I know that I'm on my way. I'm on the road to a mountaintop. And, and when I'm in that valley, again, I'm growing and I'm learning. So now the people that I mentor, I can say, but I've been there. 